are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. I'm happy to um, introduce today's event. The Jackson School acknowledges that we are in Coast Salish territory, the traditional homelands of the Duwamish, Sequamish, Tulalip, Muckleshoot, and other indigenous peoples. The Jackson School understands that the international community includes sovereign American Indian tribes, First Nations, and indigenous peoples across the world. We come here today uh, together uh, in a very serious time to discuss a very serious um, set of unfolding events with the Russian um, invasion um, of Ukraine. The Jackson School is um, very pleased to be able to um, bring this event to you in collaboration and co-sponsorship with the Ellison Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Central Asian Studies. Um, I'm here to introduce the director of the Ellison Center, Scott Radnitz, who is the Ellison Associate Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies. Scott has been really the um, impetus between organizing uh, both this event as well as providing us with um, insight through various media um, occurrences over the past few weeks as we deal with the really tragic um, and a frightening set of events that Ukraine is dealing with. Um, let me just say a couple of words about Scott so that everyone knows his distinguished career. Scott has a forthcoming book called Enemies Within, The Global Politics of Fifth Columns, which he's co-edited and which is under contract with Oxford University Press. He's also the author, author of two books, Revealing Schemes, The Politics of Conspiracy in Russia and the Post-Soviet Region, and Weapons of the Wealthy, Predatory Regimes, and Elite-Led Protests in Central Asia. He has published widely in journals um, in political science and the social sciences. He's also an associate editor of Communist and Post-Communist Studies and a faculty member at UW Center for an Informed Public. Scott, uh, thank you for all of the work that you've been doing, and I'm going to hand this over to you. Thank you, Leela. <clears throat> Ukraine has now been under siege for 12 days. During this time, the world has been witness to Russia's unprovoked aggression on a democracy and Putin's absurd pretext of demilitarizing and denazifying Ukraine. He apparently expected a quick victory, judging by the tactics in the first days of the war that assumed that Ukraine would fold at the first sight of Russian forces. Yet Ukrainians put up fierce resistance, both uniformed military and volunteers. Rather than capitulate, a society as politically divided as any other is now unified like never before. Also, we've seen unusual unity among Western allies that have implemented economic sanctions against Russia that are unprecedented in their speed and severity. These moves have battered Russia's economy and cut it off from the rest of the world. NATO countries are also providing military support, including anti-tank weapons and intelligence, which has further hampered the invasion force. As the war keeps grinding on, Russia has been increasing its targeting of civilians. The result is mounting casualties, and as of today, 1.7 million refugees who have left Ukraine. But Ukraine shows no signs of giving in to Russian aggression or surrendering its sovereignty. We've also seen in the last 12 days an information war. The Kremlin has pursued a typical top-down propaganda strategy, claiming it was undertaking a special military operation in response to a contrived Western and Ukrainian threat. But it wouldn't take long for anybody with 
um, access to reliable information to see that Russia was the aggressor, not the victim. Maintaining this lie required the government to shut down all remaining independent press in Russia and cut off access to Western press and social media platforms. By contrast, Ukraine has only needed to show the world what was happening on the ground to make clear what was really going on. Meanwhile, President Zelensky has rallied Ukrainians and appealed to world leaders, sometimes using only a smartphone. Right now, it's hard to see how this all ends, and it's easy to see how it will get worse. Whatever happens, though, the world will not be the same when it's over. For this panel today, we've assembled a group of scholars to provide diverse perspectives on this invasion and humanitarian catastrophe. It was convened on short notice, and I'm grateful to my colleagues who put aside their ordinary work and took time away from what I assume was, like me, a constant effort to collect information about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. This tragedy is also personal for many people on our campus community, people who have friends and relatives in Ukraine and Russia, or otherwise have strong connections to the region. I've asked our participants tonight to use their expertise to help people better understand what's going on. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge uh, the Jackson School of International Studies and the Center for West European Studies for co-sponsoring this event and uh, Phil Lyon and Susanna Haley for helping to get this event up and running. Our first speaker is Chris Collison. He is the senior program manager at the National Democratic Institute in Washington, DC and a UW alum. He got his master's in Russian, East European and Central Asian studies in 2017. And now Chris. Thank you, Scott. Uh, and yeah, it's just a little background. I worked as an editor for a TV channel in Ukraine and as a freelance reporter and photojournalist during the Revolution of Dignity in the first years of the war in the Donbass. And during that time, I saw regular people take risks to fight for a more just society, personal and professional risks on the Maidan, in the trenches of Eastern Ukraine, and on the streets of their cities demanding change. The revolution and the price that Ukrainians paid on the Maidan and in the Donbass inspired a years-long effort to protect Ukraine's sovereignty and to reorient it toward the pursuit of democratic values. We're now seeing this throughout the country as Ukrainians fight for the, for the survival of the nation that they've built. The images that we're seeing hourly are horrifying and it's easy to fixate on tragedy. But as we look at what's happening right now, I want to talk about some of the important progress that's been made in Ukraine over the past eight years. And I want to argue that this progress has helped lead to a heroic resistance to an authoritarian military campaign. Over the past few years, we've seen an incredible feat of nation building in Ukraine. A nascent civil society has been present ever since the country gained independence, but the events of the Revolution of Dignity and Russia's aggression in the East have helped catalyze Ukrainians' desire to build an independent democratic society that reflects their aspirations. And not just in Kyiv or Lviv, but from East to West, Ukrainians have mobilized to form civic groups and political organizations, large and small, to build a new future for themselves and for their families. This has been true in all regions of the country. Small-scale civic groups have fostered a sense of community and civic pride that's brought Ukrainians closer together. I've spoken with civic leaders throughout the country who are motivated by Ukraine's democratic breakthrough and its rejection of state violence. A consistent theme among civic organizations was the desire to what I like to call claim space, 
and that's claiming space in their communities, uh, protecting historic buildings, building parks and public spaces, and working with their local authorities to build communities that reflect people's interests. Uh, I wrote about this while I was a student at the UW and afterward during my Fulbright studies in Ukraine. And I believe that the idea of claiming space demonstrates that Ukrainians' willingness to fight for ownership of their communities, their regions, and their countries is strong and widespread. Uh, now that's being seen daily on our TV screens and on our social media feeds as Ukrainians fight for the very survival of their nation. And it demonstrates their desire to build a society that represents their interests and allows them to be viewed as equals with their European peers. During my interviews with activists, I, I asked them what they saw as the main goals of the revolution. And very often they spoke, they spoke about values, whether it's European values, justice, independence, or democracy. And it was clear to me that Ukrainians had internalized the importance of these values as a force for change and for nation building. Ukrainians are more united than ever in their desire for their country to become a sovereign democratic state. Surveys, surveys have shown overwhelming support for democracy in all regions of the country. And the desire for democracy remains a driving force for civic and political activity. And Ukraine has made some extraordinary strides toward building a democratic society over the past eight years. Since 2014, Ukraine has held multiple multi-party elections that have, observers have called credible and competitive. Political differences in Ukraine are real. Political debate and disagreements over social economic policy and competition with entrenched corruption and oligarchy have at times been heated. O over the weekend, I, I read a joke by a Ukrainian that if you put two Ukrainians in a room, they'll form three political parties. But if you threaten them, they'll form a family. And I think this speaks to the, the attitude held among many Ukrainians that while political differences and language differences can cause heated disagreements, Ukrainians remain united in the desire for a sovereign democracy and the right to choose their own futures. To be sure, reforms have not moved as quickly as some had hoped, but it's important to note some major progress and why it matters today. Among the most significant reforms, perhaps, reforms has probably been decentralization, which has brought government closer to people in towns and villages. It's given them a greater voice in decision-making in their communities. And this has driven interest in civil, uh, civic and political participation at the local level. And it's given Ukrainians great, a greater sense of ownership over their futures. In 2018, I traveled to Chuhuyev in the Kharkiv Oblast. It's a Russian-speaking town that was recently decimated by Russian shelling. Uh, in that town, a young woman and a former activist had been elected council leader. And despite a salary that was too small to support her family, she fought local business interests and set up a center to provide professional training and daycare support for local women. Stor stories like these can be found throughout the country, and they've and important steps toward building community and trust among Ukrainians. There are certainly political divisions within the country, and these play out at the ballot box. Russia may have seen these di divisions, as well as the regional language differences, as divisions within society and expected, to Ukraine, expected Ukraine to fall quickly. But what we've seen is that assumption was false. 
Ukrainians may have political disagreements and may speak different languages, but they are more united than ever in a national civic identity. What we've seen is an incredible mobilization of Ukrainian society, from the military to civil society. We've seen thousands of Ukrainian civic organizations, businesses, churches, synagogues, and groups of neighbors organized to provide shelter, safe passage, and medical and food supplies for people displaced by violence. We've also seen a massive effort to raise money for the armed forces and huge numbers of civilians volunteer to join territorial defense groups. It's no wonder that Ukrainians are able to mobilize such a well-organized resistance. Surveys have shown pretty low levels of trust toward government and politicians. However, trust among civic organizations, religious institutions, and the military have remained consistently high. Trust is key to organizing and many Ukrainians gained experience working with their neighbors and their fellow soldiers toward the common cause of building a new society or serving together in the Donbass. And they've been able to leverage these networks toward the common cause of defending their sovereignty and protecting each other. We've seen enormous, well-organized networks of Ukrainians providing resources to help those who are fleeing violence. We've also seen these networks rally international support. This has been support for the Ukrainian military, aid for people in need, and open borders for refugees. They've shown an incredible ability to demonstrate to the world that they're fighting for key values, sovereignty, democracy, and basic human rights. And although Russia has said it attacked to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, this invasion is really an attack on the society that Ukrainians have built. Russia's rhetoric has sought to dehumanize Ukrainians, calling them little Russians, and trying to paint them as controlled by NATO, the EU, or the United States. But this war is an attempt to destroy the right to self-determination and an attempt to deprive Ukrainians of their agency, culture, and their dignity. Ukrainians have made it clear that they value openness and individual freedoms. They have repeatedly rejected attempts to build, uh, to build a repressive state and have fought for their right to change their rulers. And what we're seeing now is an incredible resilience and will to fight for those values. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Our next speaker is Lada Bilanyuk, a professor in the Department of Anthropology here at the University of Washington. She does research on language ideology, language politics, and nationalism in Ukraine. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, Chris, for that wonderful discussion uh, focusing on on-the-ground experiences of people in Ukraine. Um, so Chris uh, did his work as a journalist. I'm an anthropologist, and so my research is based on fieldwork. And for the last 30 years, I've been uh, regularly going back to Ukraine and living there and um, talking to people, observing everyday life to basically learn about people's beliefs and values. And this is giving me insight into the dynamics of language and identity that often have been oversimplified and misrepresented in uh, media and academic publications. And um, also this, this on the ground perspective is very important to counter some of the larger discourses that present Ukraine as just you know, a pawn in the game between superpowers and um, I think that critically what is happening now and the success and, and the power of Ukrainians resistance to the Russian invasion is based on people's beliefs and, and attitudes on the ground. 
Um, so I want to first uh, dispel some myths and false narratives and then talk about some of the new myth-making that is happening uh, in Ukraine, the, the new folklore of the war that is actually galvanizing people. So uh, one myth or one false narrative to dispel is the idea of a country divided. Uh, the media often show pictures of uh, Ukraine, sort of East and West, Russian speaking, Ukrainian speaking, and um, that that is a false representation. Also, the idea that the war that has been ongoing for eight years in the Donbass, the Eastern Ukrainian region, that that's somehow a civil war. The percentage of people who uh, had preferred to, uh, you know, what supported Russia was a, a, a minority, and the um, separatists in the Republic were set up by Russian operatives who came in and took over uh, buildings and communication systems. And uh, many people fled, and uh, those who did not are not at liberty to argue against uh, that regime. So, um, so this idea of East versus West, Ukrainian speakers versus Russian speakers, even ethnic Ukrainians versus Russian Ukrainians is erroneous. Um, Ukraine's last census was in 2001, and a detailed map of that census shows you that uh, even in the eastern regions and southern regions, um, the countryside is largely Ukrainian speaking, meaning that people chose Ukrainian as their native language. And uh, the cities often have Russian language dominant. And uh, yes, in Crimea and some little bit of the furthest east areas, Russian language predominates. But that is not the, the reason, uh, although Putin, it's important to recognize that this is not an actual social, something that divides society, uh, because Putin has used this as an excuse, saying that he is uh, coming in to protect the Russian-speaking population that the supposed fascist Nazi government uh, wants to kill Russians. Nothing could be further from the truth. So. Um, Ukrainians are largely bilingual, even in regions where more Ukrainian is spoken publicly, everybody's exposed to media in both languages. Uh, last time I was in uh, Lviv in Western Ukraine, 10 to 15% of people on the street were speaking Russian. So uh, the depiction of some kind of nationalist West and uh, Soviet leaning East is erroneous. And um, the Euromaidan, uh, as Chris described, I think it really helped to cement uh, people across these divisions uh, in uh, for the values of human rights and freedom of speech. And so there was this figure of uh, the, this group that called themselves the Russian speaking Ukrainian nationalists, showing that that is not a contradiction. And even if people have grown up uh, with Russian because of the history of Tsarist and then Soviet subjugation of Ukrainian, many feel that it is right for their children to be able to learn Ukrainian. So I've been talking about people's native language, but even Ukrainian citizens whose ethnic heritage is Russian or part Russian, uh, largely support Ukraine's sovereignty. They have more freedoms in Ukraine than they would in Russia. And it's my most recent uh, research project has been on people who are activists, cultural and language activists in Ukraine. And I was incredibly surprised at first to find that many of these activists were actually ethnic Russians or half ethnic Russians or uh, the musicians who perform only in Ukrainian grew up speaking Russian. So it actually is um, this language boundary and ethnic boundary is something that is very often blurred. It really is a movement for uh, 
human rights and freedom of speech. Uh, now in this time of war, I've been following various available media and uh, social media, as well as news outlets. And so there are many eyewitness videos of people on the ground narrating what they see, what's going on uh, from various parts of the country, especially um, the East and, and South and Kiev, where the attacks have been prominent. And also the government uh, speeches, both President Zelensky's and his cabinet. And again, you'll see people starting speaking in Russian, they'll switch into Ukrainian, they'll switch back into Russian. Uh, even the president has, uh, while he speaks the official language formally, he grew up speaking Russian, he's very fluent in Russian, of course, uh, he has occasionally switched to Russian. So uh, this really shows that language and ethnicity is not uh, a, a barrier. This is, uh, the country is united across these differences. Another rift that has divided Ukrainians has been a rift, uh, a real rift between sort of elites, a perception of a government being corrupt and kind of cynical attitude. And amazingly, in this time of war, that rift has been erased. Uh, Chris mentioned that there is not a very high support for, for the government, but there was a survey, sociological survey done by a Kiev uh, organization on March 1st of 1,200 people, phone survey. And the, the trends are astronomical from sort of middling support from three months ago to 90% support of the president, very high um, optimism in the future of the country, very strong uh, belief in the armed forces of the country. So uh, this, this tragic barbaric invasion has actually galvanized people even more. And um, so, Zelensky, the president, and his cabinet have stayed in Kiev. He's, this, this has become kind of a legendary meme, but when uh, offered the chance to evacuate Kiev with his family, he said, I need ammunition, not a ride. And um, he has filmed videos in different places in Kiev with his cabinet to show people that he is staying there and sending a message of courage and standing firm. And he's not the only one. I think something that's also been very influential is that other uh, prominent uh, sports stars, uh, music stars, performers have come forward to join the territorial defense uh, to, you know, be boots on the ground even to defend their country. So this includes um, world champion boxers, um, the Klitschko brothers, one of whom is the mayor of Kyiv, uh, Usyk and Lomachenko. Uh, musicians include the leader of Boombox, Tartakskai, Tik, Antetila, the Kampranov brothers, many, many others. Um, and even pop stars uh, like Potap, uh, hip hopper Potap, who has always been very close and performed a lot in Russia, he released a video uh, begging his colleagues in Russia to come forward be because they perhaps can send, make more of an impact given the very um, repressive regime there. Um, so, so this uh, visibility of kind of a cultural and political elite on the ground standing firm, again, it's, it's bridging that rift and that cynicism that has been present in relation to um, sort of elites versus the common people. Um, and so finally, as many of you have probably heard, the, the, the recent events, this war and uh, you Ukrainians' responses have become legendary. The 13 soldiers who were defending Snake Island, who when the Russian warship told them to surrender, they consulted and then, then they said, which translates to Russian warship, go 
F yourself, um, that phrase um, has spread like wildfire. Now we don't know whether those uh, soldiers are alive or not from Snake Island, but um, this phrase of sending the invading forces to go F themselves, um, it's not that Ukrainians are particularly vulgar, it's just that in times of hor horrific events, bombings, civilian buildings being, and, and schools and kindergartens and people dying, you need some kind of language that lets you express that emotion and that uh, stalwartness in face of the enemy. And so that phrase has uh, taken, come alive in many, many different areas. Um, some other uh, mythical events, the ghost of Kiev, the supposed single pilot who took down many, many Russian planes, we don't know if it is one pilot or many. Indeed, many Russian planes have been downed. I recently saw a meme that showed a woman putting lipstick on saying, ah, you thought the ghost of Kiev was a man. So again, this sort of mythical power for uh, the Ukrainian side. And um, the, the woman who was videotaped going up to a Russian soldier, asking him to put, giving him some sunflower seeds, asking him to put those in his pocket so that at least when he falls, uh, he sunflowers can can grow from him on this land, making the sunflower kind of a symbol for for what is going on right now. And I will end just with one everyday kind of something that hasn't quite reached legendary proportions, but there are many stories like this that people are sharing online. The social media are incredibly important. Um, uh, in Kharkiv, some musicians that I know, um, they have joined the territorial defense and. It, and the, the roads are all disrupted and wrecks and their van got stuck uh, on the outskirts and it's getting late there. Uh, they were visiting a, a roadblock. They're stuck in mud, they can't move. They call the army that comes with a, a, a armored vehicle to pull them out, but the tow rope and the hook don't fit that little VW van. Uh, but many of the Russian vehicles that have been seized, they found that there's equipment they were expecting to deal with unruly populations, not just military. So there's shields and helmets and batons and tasers and handcuffs. So some of them had these handcuffs and this uh, musician recounts how they managed to use three pairs of handcuffs to link the VWB bus to the armored vehicle tow hook to get that bus out. And, um, and it was night and, and, and it, they were, close to the front and little stories like this that are that are being spread and shared on media that um, have some humor in them that are really inspiring people. So there is uh, so much yet to to gather and to understand, but this is just a little window onto what is actually making people on the ground be very uh, inspired to protect their land. Thank you. Thank you, Lada. Our next speaker is Glennis Young. She is the chair of the Department of History at the University of Washington and a professor at the Jackson School of International Studies. She's the author of The Communist Experience in the 20th Century, A Global History Through Sources from 2011. And her current book project is entitled Displaced from the Soviet Union to Franco Spain in the Cold War. Thank you so much, Scott. And thanks very much to uh, Chris and uh, Lada for your excellent uh, presentations. So um, the focus of my presentation right, it, today is going to be Putin's use and abuse of history. 
that Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin would use and abuse history in service of his invasion of Ukraine is uh, tragically a given. Uh, but the question is how has he done this and what is the significance? The issue that I've been asked to comment on most uh, by reporters is this, on what basis, in fact, do, does Putin use quote unquote history to deny uh, Ukraine statehood? So I wanna approach this question by examining uh, his speech of February 21st, uh, when he recognized the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. Commentators have dismissed the speech. They've called it a ramp. They've said it's rambling. It definitely is that, but it's also a very, very interesting document uh, in what it tells us about Putin's conception of Russian and Ukrainian history and their relationship and his political goals, including how his concerns about his own legacy have shaped his treatment of Ukraine. So his argument for denying Ukrainian statehood uh, has at least five central elements. Uh, and you'll see that if you take the first letter of each of the, of the word of, the, of each of the um, central claims, uh, they spell the word power. So that's one way you might remember this, but I'm gonna kind of push back against just a simplistic uh, argument that all this is about is power. So one important element is uh, looking at uh, the first one, prior incorporation of Ukraine into Russia. The fact that yes, Ukrainian territory was part of the Russian empire for centuries. Uh, Putin refers to this in his speech by saying, Ukraine quote, is an inalienable part of our own history, culture and spiritual space. A second element is omissions. Uh, so what does he leave out? He leaves out, not surprisingly, uh, any mention whatsoever of Ukrainian nationalism in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. Uh, in fact, he refers to Ukrainian nationalism obliquely yet more than dismissively by calling it, quote, the vi virus of nationalist ambitions. He also glosses over the importance of Ukrainian independence uh, during the Russian Civil War. And interestingly enough, he completely ignores the fact that Ukraine was in fact independent for all intents and purposes after the Bolshevik regime reconquered it in the Civil War. Uh, at that point, we're talking about 1921, Ukraine was known as the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine. Um, it exercised state sovereignty. It signed treaties with other newly independent states, such as newly independent Poland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Austria. It maintained diplomatic missions abroad. And interestingly enough, it had a diplomatic mission in Moscow. He tends to, moving on to the third uh, point, write off periods of Ukrainian independence as products of circumstance and errors by Russian leaders. Uh, and this is a really important part of his argument. He attributes the very existence of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic during the Civil War to difficulties faced by the Bolsheviks. 
And moreover, he attributes Ukrainian statehood beginning in 1991 to Lenin's mistake, Lenin's original sin, you might call it, of insisting that the Soviet Union, which was formed in 1922, become a union of Soviet socialist republics, each with the right to secede from the Soviet Union, which Ukraine did in 1991. A little bit of background here, Lenin rejected Stalin's argument for autonomization, that is incorporating Ukraine into the Russian Soviet Federated Socialist Republic. Instead, Lenin insisted, let, uh, as Putin claims, he wanted to give the Union Republics, the stat, as Putin calls it, the status of national state entities with the right to secede from the unified state without any conditions. Uh, Lenin, according to Putin, was not only wrong, not only did he make a mistake, uh, these were more, this was more than a mistake, as, as uh, Putin put it. This is something that is on Lenin's conscience as, as his uh, you know, remains are uh, resting in the, the tomb in Moscow on, on Red Square. And because Ukrainian statehood was the result of Lenin's error, uh, Ukraine has no right to statehood now. So let's move on, in fact, to errors. Uh, he calls into question Ukraine's territorial boundaries by attributing them to Lenin and even Stalin's mistakes. For example, going in reverse chronological order, he mentions Stalin's decision implemented by Khrushchev to return Crimea to Ukraine in 1954. Putin also alludes to the fact that when the Soviet Union defeated Nazi Germany in 1945 in a Transcarpathia, which had previously been part of Czechoslovakia. Uh, Stalin incidentally made Transcarpathia part of Ukraine's Southwest territory. Putin also alludes to the fact that when, following the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, in 1939, the Soviet Union took Eastern Poland that Stalin added this territory to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. This territory, by the way, includes Lviv, uh, which was in 1939 linguistically comprised of a large Yiddish and Polish speaking community. Once part of the Soviet Union, Lviv would be comprised mainly of Ukrainian speakers. It was also the locus of Ukrainian nationalism in Western Ukraine. So another and final point, moving on to R here, is that in terms of the deep structure of this, of Putin's speech, uh, Russia is always the subject and Ukraine is always the object of Ukraine's actions. Not surprisingly, uh, he gives no agency whatsoever to Ukrainians, uh, he posits this uh, binary opposition, Russia's as actors, Ukraine's at, Ukrainians as object of Russia's actors, actions as the essential, eternal, and natural nature of Russian-Ukrainian history. Uh, on the first page of his speech, for example, he, he uh, uh, said, quote, modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia, or to be more precise, by Bolshevik communist Russia, unquote. Only the Russian people should ever have agency. 
For Putin, the creation of what he calls modern Ukraine involved taking away, quote unquote, historically Russian land. And he also paints Russians here as victors, writing that no one asked the millions of people living there what they thought. So to be Russian for Putin is to have historical and political agency. To be Ukrainian, asserts Putin, is to be denied historical and political agency. He claims these to be essential historical truths with Putin, of course, as the ultimate interpreter of Russian history and its relationship to Ukrainian history. So what's the significance of how Putin abuses history to justify eliminating Ukrainian statehood? Yes, as the acronym suggests, uh, this is about power, but I think it's also about something more um, related to power, but analytically distinct from it. I think it's uh, about how important Ukraine is to Putin for achieving his place as a Russian state builder. It's existentially important and inter in inextricably intertwined with his identity as a state builder. By criticizing, even denouncing Lenin and Stalin, whom he grew up as a member of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, uh, treating with complete reverence for their errors in contributing to the basis of, for Ukraine's assertion of its statehood and its current territorial boundaries. He dethrones them from the pedestal of Russian state builders. He also claims on paper his place in history as the greatest builder of the Russian state in the modern era. The interesting paradox is that he is this, he supplants the Marxist-Leninist historical orthodoxy of Lenin and Stalin and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union for his own, namely Putinist historical orthodoxy. It makes sense, in fact, that a former Marxist-Leninist would see it uh, as essential that he provide what he considered to, to be uh, an incontrovertible set of historical arguments and indeed a style of or argumentation amidst the rant in support of his military invasion of Ukraine. An invasion whose goal is, if you take his speech earnestly, uh, to correct the accidents and contingencies of Russian history. So I will end there. I wanna just end with a ray of hope. I've also been following the anti-war movement in Russia and I would be happy to take questions uh, about that in the question and answer session. Thank you. Thank you, Glennis. Our next speaker is Sofia Fijorda. She's a PhD student at Taras Shevchenko National University in Kiev and a Fulbright Ukrainian language teaching assistant at UW for this year, Sofia. Hello, everyone. Uh, today's my topi topic is Russia's brutal invasion in Ukraine as it is, inside view. Uh, you can see the map um, that clearly shows that occupiers do not control the territory, they temporarily control the roads. And today there are so many uh, different manipulations with uh, the map of Ukraine, so it's really important uh, to be clear in all aspects. Um, first of all, I would like to um, highlight that this is a war in Ukraine, not crisis, conflict, special military operation, whatever it is. It's a real war. 
um, because it's completely different um, as crisis and war. And sometimes we can um, hear that it's Putin's war, but um, Putin was not uh, grown up in the isolation. And that's why it's important to realize that uh, the narrative of two brothers or three brothers, Slavic brothers, it's really very popular in Russia, in Belarus. And uh, until this uh, narrative exists, is uh, there will be a hazard for Ukrainian independence. Uh, here you can see their uh, website um, if you would like to uh, read more about Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Um, and some of my friends um, and here uh, all the time ask me, how are you? How are your friends? How are, are your families? Uh, I am originally from Kyiv. My parents are right now in Kyiv, but I uh, have also relatives in Lviv. And uh, believe me, even I being here, I can't imagine all the horror that is right now in my home country. And that's why I decided uh, to uh, put some videos in order to uh, involve in all this situation and just to realize how it's awful um, might be in the, 20, uh, the, the 21st century. Uh, so the uh, 24th of February started with a signal, air alarm signal. even imagine how it, how it will be during 12 days in a row to be in such conditions. Um, now I would like to show one video created by my colleague Christina Petrov. She is also Falte uh, and she is right now at University of Kansas and um, just also to clarification. Uh, yes, and uh, we know that uh, this is Lubomir Husar. Uh, he was uh, one of the leader of Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, and uh, he told like authorities are afraid uh, of freedom in people's heart much more than hunger, uh, because the hungry man you can vote, uh, yeah, can be bought, but the free man can be only killed. And this, uh, this strategy we can uh, see uh, during 12 days, uh, because there is no logic, they just destroy everything. They, uh, during uh, only in 12 days, more than 2,000 civilians have been killed, including 48 children and babies. Uh, you can see the pictures um, on the left side, the baby was only 18 small, uh, month old. So uh, this has no, no explanation. And also it's important to mention that um, people who desire to evacuate or just volunteer, they also um, could be killed, not 
by accident by uh, but intentionally uh, for example russian uh, russians killed uh, these friends in bucha while they tried to uh, get some food uh, to pets um, or the chief of the hostomal community also was shot just because he distributed bread and medicine to the people. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands uh, wounded. Uh, millions are hidden in Bob's shelter. There is also a video when um, young women um, are all, all are in the bomb shelter. And it's really awful to, to look at this. Um, as it was mentioned above, there are more than um, 1.7 million million refugees. Um, Ruski Mir, uh, yeah, as it calls, it became not their uh, world, but not a peace, but it's a reality, a awful reality uh, that destroy everything schools, churches, uh, monasteries, everything. And I would like also to mention how does Russia's propaganda work? You can see the picture. And the truth is that this is in Irpin, uh, civilians are forced to hide under the bridge. Uh, and the same picture we see, but with another um, description. So it's not Irpin, yeah, as it, um, uh, in reality, but it's uh, called like Mariupol and residents are trying to get off the city into the humanitarian corridor and the bridge was blown up by the Ukrainian army. So we see that the same picture can be uh, shown and can be uh, described um, uh, described in different ways. And I would like to mention one more thing that before this invasion, there were bad signs and also good signs. For example, uh, one of the signs was on the 14th of January, the cross of St. Sophia's Cathedral fell during the bad weather. Um, and once it happened only before World War II. And uh, thanks God, uh, on the 2nd of March, it was installed. So we hope that this war will end soon. And there also were good things, uh, signs. Uh, the rainbow over um, Halivsky Monastery was um, exactly on a 18th of February. And even today, a white dove flew to the priest and said, um, set on his hand uh, while he was evacuating people from Kharkiv. So there are so many uh, signs that uh, we hope everything will be okay very soon. And uh, there are some thoughts uh, of different Ukrainians, my friends, and they uh, have the same idea. After World War II, it was the Nuremberg uh, trials. However, Stalinism has been never punished. And here uh, we have uh, the re result of these actions. And until Muscovy, I uh, specifically use this Muscovy because its original name, not Russia, but Muscovy, collapses like Hitler's uh, Germany. This regime and its followers uh, will very likely sow evil and death in future. Uh, so it's very important to uh, be strong and uh, consistent in order to fight against this evil. And um, to finish my uh, short presentation, I would like with a humor uh, why Ukraine is impossible to win just because we have God's protection and we have lots of uh, Ukrainian people. Uh, and it's not the army, yeah, it's the whole nation which is army. Uh, so here you can see the ordinary man in Berdyansk. Uh, he's just carrying a, a mind in bare hands 
yeah so it's really ukrainian man um also um in in kiev a woman knocked down a russian drone from a balcony uh, from a balcony with a jar of cucumber so you see um how it's very um funny uh, also there are lots of volunteering and supporting people uh, people with disabilities make a molot uh, molotov cocktail students uh, make varaniki and kikimara and um, bake um, bread so all of people are united gathered and as uh, lada uh, said uh, andrei hlevnyuk the leader of boombox is also a stay in kiev in local defense units and if you would like there is an internet um Mm, video uh, where you can uh, hear the song "Oh You Lose Chervona Kalina." Oh, you lose Chervona Kalina. Oh, Kalilasya, чогось наша славна Україна зажурилася. you can see that uh, Ukrainian nation is creating uh, on our eyes and I believe that all of these uh, young generations they um, will born more babies yes and um, here also as a symbol uh, orchestra uh, armed forces performed a national atom of Ukraine So the main my uh, message is to uh, thank you so much for support, uh, for your help. And uh, I believe that everything will be good very soon because we are united, we are strong, we are brave and God is with us. Thank you so much for your attention. And if you have some question, I would love to answer. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophia. Our last speaker is John Koenig, a lecturer at the Jackson School, who served for three decades in the US Foreign Service. He, among other things, is the former US Deputy Permanent Representative to NATO in Brussels, and he was also US Ambassador to Cyprus. Ambassador Koenig. Thank you, Scott, and thanks to all the other speakers for your interesting uh, presentations. Uh, I plan to talk about NATO, Ukraine, and Russia. I will address the current response to Russia's invasion and the historical issue of NATO enlargement as it developed in the post-Cold War period, affecting NATO's approach to Russia, Ukraine, and NATO-Russia relations. NATO's response to the Ukraine crisis and invasion began before Russian forces invaded and has remained remarkably consistent. It is based on reinforcing, in effect, the distinction between NATO allies on the one hand and partner countries, including Ukraine, in order to strengthen deterrence based on Article 5 of the Washington Treaty, which describes an external attack on any one ally as an attack on all that requires a collective response. Since before the invasion, NATO forces have moved into forward areas in the frontline allied countries. NATO has also activated the potent expeditionary NATO response force for the first time for a collective defense mission. 
This is all as important politically as militarily as a demonstration of resolve and commitment to Article 5. It is in most ways a ramping up of NATO's reassurance and readiness program launched after Russia's annexation of Crimea and invasion of Eastern Ukraine in 2014. The forces moved to frontline allies so far are significant, but also relatively limited in number. Yet there is more and more discussion of permanent basing of robust NATO forces in the frontline states, which seems a likely consequence of the current war. This would put NATO's posture more in line with that of the Cold War. Also, as this is the 21st century, Russia is feared as much for its cyber weapons as its nukes, so the alliance is also trying to enforce cyber defense, reinforce cyber defenses and other measures to deter and thwart Russia's hybrid warfare attacks. In keeping with practice extending back to the Cold War, NATO and the US are showing great caution regarding anything that would bring alliance forces into direct military engagement with Russian forces. The reason is the same as in the past. NATO's nature as a defensive alliance and its desire to avoid escalation and widening war outside that defensive context. Since 2014, NATO has returned to its collective defense roots after two decades of engagement in peace support and expeditionary operations from the Balkans to Afghanistan. The wrenching scenes coming from Ukraine, the pleas of Ukrainian leaders and the Ukrainian people and moral outrage at Putin's invasion of Ukraine are unlikely to induce NATO to change this approach. Thus, late last week, NATO foreign ministers rejected the idea of imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. A no-fly zone would make NATO a party to the conflict. It would almost certainly entail direct military hostilities between NATO forces, especially American forces and Russian forces in the skies over Ukraine and in suppressing Russian air defense capabilities on the ground, including in Russia and Belarus. NATO forces involved would operate from alliance territory territory. Experience shows that no-fly zones over active war zones are often a slippery slope. They can easily develop into broader and more direct military engagement. In the case of Ukraine, Russia's war is mainly a ground assault, and the temptation to take military countermeasures against ground operations would be very great. There are other possibilities for NATO action. NATO allies, including quite remarkably Germany, are supplying weapons and lethal assistance to the Ukrainian armed forces, but not NATO itself. NATO could provide a clearinghouse for such assistance, but seems unlikely to do so absent a real need. This will probably remain a national rather than alliance activity. One idea under discussion, the possibility that one or more NATO allies could supply Ukraine with combat aircraft, risks drawing NATO directly into the war and could strain or even break alliance unity, which has so far been solid. NATO could assist with the humanitarian crisis arising in countries receiving refugees from Ukraine, whose numbers now approach 2 million and are mounting fast. NATO has referred to this as a priority for its reinforcing deployments to frontline allies. In the past, NATO has offered logistical support in humanitarian crises, including beyond alliance territory as in Pakistan, but it is unlikely to undertake a humanitarian mission inside Ukraine in order to avoid being drawn directly into the conflict. Ukrainian forces and the Ukrainian people have been more resilient and resourceful in standing up to Russia than most outside observers and military analysts expected. This, along with the unprovoked nature of Russia's assault on its weaker neighbor and the tremendous human suffering it has caused, and the courage of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, has created powerful sympathy for Ukraine and Ukrainians in America, Europe, and the world. This could yet translate into more direct NATO engagement in the conflict, but I consider that to be unlikely unless Russia strikes NATO first. I don't think Putin will pull that trigger 
even though his rhetoric is extremely disturbing and Russian forces behavior on the ground is outrageous. Economic sanctions and political isolation are the tools that the US and the West are willing to apply. Military aid, yes, but not military force. Not now and probably not ever. Now I would like to take a few minutes to introduce a topic that may seem irrelevant in this time of crisis, the debate over NATO enlargement back in the 1990s and the subsequent evolution of increasingly hostile NATO-Russia relations. It does not in any way justify Russia's brutal invasion, but it helps explain the backstory, particularly with regard to NATO and the roles played by the US and NATO. Over the past month, while taking practical steps in response to the Russian invasion, NATO has also reaffirmed the open door for NATO enlargement to Ukraine. This is a policy, or really more just a set of talking points, which is rooted in the Washington Treaty and which has been proclaimed through several rounds of expansion since 1999. The relevant wording of the treaty in Article 10 makes it clear that NATO has the option to admit new members in Europe if current allies believe that doing so would enhance alliance security. Allies have at the same time made clear that there is no prospect for Ukraine to join NATO in the foreseeable future. Before the first round of enlargement in 1999, many prominent academic Russia specialists and experienced foreign policy practitioners raised strong objections to NATO expansion eastward. The late George Kennan, who devised America's Cold War policy of containment of the Soviet Union, can speak for the group. In 1997, Kennan wrote the following, quote, something of the highest importance is at stake here. And perhaps it is not too late to advance the view that I believe is not only mine alone, but is shared by a number of others with extensive and in most instances, more recent experience in Russian matters. The view bluntly stated is that expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Kennan went on, such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking." Close quote. Kennan's warning, echoed by many others at the time, sounds prophetic. Would Europe be better off today if we had heeded his advice? Perhaps, perhaps not. Would Ukraine be better off? Perhaps it's not for me to say. Admittedly, it is very hard in any case to convincingly argue a counterfactual. But I can say this. Over my 10 years from 2002 to 2012, working actively on NATO matters at NATO headquarters in Brussels, then in Berlin, then as a NATO political advisor, NATO became increasingly and more and more overtly anti-Russian. The United States in particular validated and embraced the views of new allies, especially Poland, with that country's long and often hostile history with Moscow. The 2004 enlargement brought in a number of other new allies preoccupied with Russia as a threat. While their concerns about Russia were natural given their history, the US made a point of endorsing and advancing their views within the alliance rather than ameliorating or balancing them. I was in the room at the Munich Security Conference in 2007 when Putin vilified the US and warned that Russia would not accept further NATO expansion toward its borders. There was a collective gasp of indignation, but NATO moved on without taking the threat seriously. In April 2008, the George W. Bush administration forced through a clumsy compromise at the NATO summit in Bucharest. We agree, the alliance declared, that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO, but NATO offered neither a path to membership nor any security guarantees. It was not an invitation to NATO as foreseen in the Washington Treaty. 
Four years, four months later, Putin invaded Georgia. Then in 2014, when Ukrainians rose up to demand a right to seek integration with Europe and chart their own future, Russia annexed Crimea and created separatist regimes in Ukraine's east. The story had many more twists, of course, but at each turn over 20 years, Russia insisted NATO enlargement was a threat to its vital interests that it would not tolerate. At each turn, America and NATO insisted as today that Moscow's objections ignored the sovereignty of its neighbors, that Russia had no reason to regard NATO as a threat, and that if anything, it was Ukraine, Georgia, and even NATO allies who were threatened by Russian aggression. This does not justify Moscow's actions, but understanding is different from justification. A series of choices were made over two decades by many sides, including Russia, the US, and NATO. Would George Kennan and the other Cassandras of the 1990s be surprised by where those choices have led us? Thank you. Uh, thank you, John. I've gotten a lot of great questions. I'm gonna to try to get to as many as I can, and uh, they touch on a lot of different topics. Uh, I'll start with this one. Some people have raised the question of what influence uh, Western influence and intervention in Ukraine has had over these years. Um, and in particular, I think the implication is that uh, American, especially Western assistance to Ukraine has, has somehow um, drawn Russia's ire or, or provoked uh, this Russian attack. Now, people who have been uh, monitoring um, Western assistance to Ukraine over, over these years um, might have something to, to say about that, at least. So what, what it looked like on the ground before, and then a separate question might be um, how that was perceived in Russia and whether that even matters. Maybe Chris, would you, would you want to start? Um, since that's it's kind of similar to what you uh, talked about. Sure, and I'm not really a Russia expert, uh, but I can say from experience from in working in Ukraine that certainly uh, Western assistance has been present and it's uh, a major factor in assisting Ukrainians to build institutions uh, to advance their interests. And I think this is an important component of uh, helping them to uh, choose their own future. And this is the future that Ukrainians have chosen for themselves. And my sort of observation is that Russia's actions are intended to take away that choice um, and to nullify Ukraine's choice to join the European Union to join the European community and to um, take away their sovereignty to make their own choices about their internal politics. Glennis? I would say that there's you know, no doubt that Western intervention in Ukraine has stoked Putin's ire, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that for Putin, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. So, um, you know, I think that Putin's ambitions to uh, avenge that, hum that terrible humiliation, uh, that catastrophe, uh, that predates uh, Western, much of the Western influence in Ukraine. And I think that that's, that the, it's the meaning that Putin and other important members of his inner circle give to Western influence that is really the key here. And it's the larger historical context uh, and Putin's personal experience of the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and this, the alleged tragedy or catastrophe that that occurs that's a really important 
uh, aspects of the, the historical context. That's, that's, I think, that is driving um, much of Putin's uh, calculations. Okay, uh, then I'll move on to another question. Uh, this one is about <clears throat> refugees. So, uh, so there's one question that was pointed out. Um, Ukrainian refugees have been received by European countries um, in a, and the media has portrayed these refugees differently than the Syrian refugees were uh, back in 2015. The question is um, what, what issues of race might be coming into play when we hear about the responses and support for Ukraine. And a related question uh, has to do with how long uh, this generosity from these receiving countries will continue um, if, if the war goes on. I can address that uh, a little bit. Um, so yes, there have been uh, some news of um, not just uh, the difference between Syrian refugees, but of uh, students from other countries who are studying in Ukraine, like from Africa, uh, having difficulties crossing the border. And um, so I wanna point out here that these uh, accusations of racism can be a very potent um, informational, part of the informational war. Uh, so Ukrainian uh, leadership has come forward, the government to, to condemn any uh, discrimination on the basis of race um, to support the students who want to evacuate. And yet there is this situation with throngs of people at the border and Ukrainian men ages 18 to 60 are not um, allowed to exit. Uh, and in general, uh, pregnant women, women with under five are prioritized, then women with older children and elderly. So um, some of the perceived discrimination in terms of prioritizing people getting out of the country um, is likely not specifically based on race. I'm not saying that there, that there aren't racist individuals at the border, but this is certainly not a government policy. This is something that the government condemns. Uh, now, how uh, the Eastern European countries who are receiving um, refugees, um, certainly this policy of extreme openness, I suspect that it has a lot to do with uh, race, um, but, um, I'm not an expert, so I can't speak to that, but I just wanted to point out that that stories of like, oh, the Ukrainians are racist, they're not letting out the, the, the African students are, um, can be blown up uh, to, to try to put uh, Ukraine in a negative light. And while yes, I acknowledge that there certainly are racist incidents, but there also are many stories of people being um, very supportive. John. Thank you. I would just say I'm not an expert either, but uh, I think much of the uh, focus in this connection has, has uh, come about because of Poland's very, very different approach to these refugees from the way that it addressed Middle Eastern and Syrian and other refugees during the European Union's uh, refugee crisis. Poland was among the hardest line countries that refused to take any refugees in that crisis. And of course, now they are the leading recipient of uh, Ukrainian refugees in the current crisis. I would say I salute them for what they're doing for Ukrainian refugees, but we really should not forget that Poland was a country that refused to receive any uh, Middle Eastern refugees during the refugee crisis. Now, some audience members took Lenis's invitation to ask about the anti-war movement in Russia. How are, how are people there able to organize, communicate and mobilize? Um, do you think the anti-war movement's impacting the way Putin's P-O-W-E-R narrative is being seen throughout Russia? 
Could you repeat that last part, Scott? Yes. How, how do you think the anti-war movement is impacting the way Putin's power narrative is being seen throughout the Russian nation? Right. Well, you know, the, the uh, anti-war movement, you know, if we can call it that, and I think that we can, has uh, been constantly changing um, since the, since the, um, since the uh, invasion. So I remember uh, getting on the website for Echo of Moscow, Echo Moskvi, um, shortly after the um, invasion started and uh, watching, monitoring the chat uh, function or watching the chat function, I could say, I should say. And what, you know, what really, um, maybe it didn't shock me, but, but, but what really made a great impression on me is the fierceness of the uh, denunciation of Putin and the war. Uh, uh, right away, the, you know, the, there were people, you know, posting Putin is Hitler and so forth and so on. It's Putin who is a fascist. So completely overturning the official narrative of that of the purpose of the war, the official purpose, which is denazification. Uh, and so the thing about Ekomoskvi is that it's it's no longer allowed to broadcast. Um, it, along with um, the uh, radio station uh, Rain or Dojd, uh, were have been taken off the air. And even uh, radio, uh, even Ekomoskvi's attempt to broadcast on YouTube, which it did for a couple days. Um, it, as, as far as I know, I didn't get to, to, to look at it, yes, the website yesterday, but that's no longer working. So this is all part of the law that, that was passed on, on um, Friday to make it illegal to um, support any element outside the official narrative of the war. Uh, with the possible penalty of um, 15 years uh, in prison, if up to 15 years in prison, if one is found guilty of that. So in terms of the, you know, how Russians are communicating about their feelings about the war and, um, you know, what the significance thereof is, let me just say a couple of things, because I know we have a couple of uh, many other questions that people want um, uh, to get to. So this is a really, this is a multi-dimensional movement. You know, we, we all have probably seen pictures of protesters on the street. Um, you know, 3,500, at least 3,500 people were arrested throughout Russia yesterday. Uh, I would say, you know, that the, the, what I've heard is that roughly, and who knows if this is correct, that half of Russians support the war and half are, are really opposed to it. So there's street protests, there's communication on what's left and what's constantly changing uh, uh, in terms of the constellation of Russian um, social, of social media. Uh, there are, there are, have been letters and petitions uh, signed by I think close to a million people um, just in the first couple of days of the war. Uh, the, the vehemence with which uh, the war is being denounced. The, the 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 sense that this is, you know, this is this is a moral outrage, uh, and that there is absolutely no justification for the war uh, is really really striking. So, uh, what is this going to? What impact will all of this have? And I've just given a really cursory, incomplete, you know, overview of the anti-war movement. 
Well, I think that's the fundamental question. That's the 64,000 ruble question here um, in the sense that, um, you know, Putin has really, I think, tied the legitimacy of his regime very significantly to the outcome of the war. The really interesting is it's, it's so uh, inspiring to see Russians out on the street protesting this war, risking, you know, landing up in jail. The, the key thing I think will be to what extent the official power narrative as the questioner put it, starts getting questioned by those in Putin's government itself. To what extent we, we see conflict between elites as to challenging the official narrative of the war. Um, that's what start to, started to happen during World War I. That's what happened to Nicholas II's government. I'm not saying making any kind of prediction that that's gonna, going to happen, but, at, uh, you know, and there's several different outcomes if that starts to happen. What I hope happens, and I'll end with this, is that Putin realizes, begins to realize that it's not in Russia's interests to continue this war. Thank you. Thanks. A related question is, is there any technology that could break through Russian censorship and disinformation to tell Russians what their government is actually doing? And I'll add to that uh, for Lada, Sophia, and Chris, uh, how are the Ukrainians that you're in touch with uh, obtaining information? And is there a way that they're trying to communicate with um, friends, relatives, contacts in Russia to try to tell them what they know through other channels? Lada? Sure, yes. Uh, so um, many aspects to that question. Definitely many Ukrainians, I think there was a number, there, there's a huge number of Ukrainians that have family members in Russia. And they are very aware that Putin can't do this single-handedly, that there has to be an army to carry this out and, and popular support. Um, it is a huge challenge. Um, many people are reporting that they call their relatives and their relatives just don't want to believe it, say that they are being zombified by Western media. But um, there are examples of people, actually today Seattle Times uh, referred to papapovier.com, uh, where one man um, from Ukraine has made it an effort to you know, keep calling to his dad and opening a dialogue, trying to convey what is actually happening for, for people to actually believe their family ties rather than the media. Uh, to, to have some give and take in the discussion. So I know many people are trying that. There's other efforts like um, people leaving reviews for restaurants and cafes, trying to use that medium as a way to convey what is happening. I have uh, seen a, a video of somebody's TV in Russia that got hacked. Uh, so, so there's a lot of hacking to show at least a few minutes of actual footage of the war that is happening in Ukraine. Um, I've heard actually that that you know even teenagers in Ukraine in their bomb shelters. One way they're contributing is by using their computer science skills to try to um, hack sites. But the more sophisticated hacking is is this example that I saw of actual footage being put on a uh, Russian TV channel in in the middle of some show. So definitely uh, a lot of people trying to make phone calls, mostly. Um, you know, hitting a wall. Um, 
there was also footage of, of somebody brave with, uh, who went up to inhabitants of a Russian city asking them, saying, these are photos of what is happening in Ukraine, verified by international media. What is your reaction? And sadly, the vast majority either didn't want to look or just said, I'm for Putin, or others said, well, you know, what do we know? The, 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 the people up top, they can see better what is necessary. Although I do remember one um, older woman just, you know, saying that uh, God knows what they're doing, and a young student saying, well, you know, I can't really comment on this because there will be repercussions. So, uh, so, so it's an uphill battle, but I think a lot of people feel that um, there are many good people in Russia and we need them, we need their support, we need them to know what is truly happening and um, so are making efforts to, to reach out. Sophia. Yeah, thank you for this question. It's really very important and um, a very actual question because I have lots of my friends and we every morning we start uh, not with a cup of coffee but with uh, informational war, in informational ban because there are plenty, plenty of different uh, Telegram pages, Instagram pages that um, openly uh, publish fake news and uh, even uh, in the comments when we uh, say like you are lying, like you are lying it's not uh, the truth uh, they just um, close all the comments and um, recently uh, Instagram page they uh, even don't allow Ukrainians to uh, go to this page in order to comment because it just blocked uh, by their Instagram Instagram like uh, by this Instagram. And that's why uh, the most awful of all these people, I realized that, yes, there are, uh, I also have friends in Russia and they uh, wrote me and support me. So uh, I don't deny like all, all of them, you know, but uh, a great majority of all these Russian uh, Russians, uh, the most awful is that they have no personal opinion at all when you are trying to talk to, uh, with them they just talk uh, they just uh, say uh, oh i just believe uh, my president he knows well uh, like what is going on so but uh, when uh, as lada uh, as told when you publish and when you show this videos uh, photos pictures and they just wrote uh, why are you showing me this uh, I don't know, like, I just believe my president and I like, it's not uh, my deal, yeah, at all. Uh, and the most awful that um, the responsibility of all these deaths are also on these people because they allow, uh, why Putin is so confident? Because he realized that this great amount of people, they uh, support him. And that's why he's so uh, brave and he's so confident. And that's why it's very important to bro uh, break this uh, wall in order to show that uh, we are not afraid of you. You are just a human, yeah? And everyone knows about your life. And uh, it's really important to speak, but... Um, as far as they know, um, to a great majority of people, you they just don't want to listen to you. So they just don't hear you at all. And that's why it's really important uh, to uh, to share your energy, yeah, to share the information among the rest, among the people who can listen, but not uh, with these people because they just don't uh, don't hear you and don't want to hear you. And if you allow me, I just would like to uh, show you one joke that uh, recently appears, and it's you know like in every joke there is a, a part of truth. Hello, mom. 
I am a prisoner in Ukraine. Who is this? Mom, it's me, your son. I am sorry, mister, but they, like TV, they said on TV that I have a daughter. Don't call me again. So you see this tragedy, yeah? It's, it's not very fun at all, yeah. And it's a, a problem. I just want to add, since I saw that somebody asked specifically about mothers of soldiers, and that is also an outreach effort that the Ukrainian government is making, that the soldiers that are taken as prisoners of war, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Some of them, you know, are, are 20 years old, 21 years old, don't really know what they're doing there, but they do uh, videotape them calling their homes and explaining what's going on. Um, and uh yeah. Recently today, there was one, uh, I think, video that was shared of, of a middle-aged soldier who was much more articulate in, you know, explaining what he realized is going on and how coming into it, he was misinformed. But for the most part, these young conscripts are, are clueless about why they're there and also are aware that if they decline to do what they're told that they will be jailed or shot for, for desertion. So it's a huge challenge, but I think that given the past power of mothers of soldiers in Russia uh, to protest uh, war, that there is a hope that as more and more of these stories get out, that they may become a more powerful force. There's, there, <clears throat> there's no doubt that censorship has increased very significantly since the start of the war. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, there were a couple, few days there when quite a bit of information was getting in, uh, and, and it's still getting in. Uh, email, for example, is one possibility, although as, as far as I know, uh, Soviet, Russian email is not being censored to the extent that, say, it is, if, you know, if you're a foreigner in Cuba, um, where I've spent some time. That doesn't mean that people don't have to be very circumspect in terms of what they're writing. And when I've written to people I know in Russia, I've said things like, you know, I have these questions, but please don't write me back if you don't feel comfortable doing so. Um, uh, so, and there are other, you know, there are, I, 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 you know, it's impossible for me to know exactly which websites of Western news one can access in Russia right now. My sense is that my guess is that there probably are, are some that one can that one can access. The, the question is who is who wants to access them? The power of the official narrative is definitely there. What's key going forward, I think, is to uh, hope that some people who believe the official narrative um, will perhaps because of mother's connections with soldiers, perhaps because of news that actually comes back from the front, the power of personal, uh, of, you know, personal experience that's relayed in a really direct way. My hope is that those who right now uh, do believe the official version of this special narrative connected to this special military operation will begin to question it. Great. Uh, I'm getting lots of great questions. I'm trying to uh, get through as many as I can in the short time we have. Uh, one question that came up is about the role of religion uh, in, in the politics uh, of, of both sides. So the Russian Orthodox Church has stood firmly on the side of the, of the Kremlin for many years, and um, religious rhetoric has played somewhat of a role in the rationale for this war on, on the Kremlin side. 
Um, and astute observer also noticed that in Sophia's slide deck, uh, there was also um, a photo of a, a Ukrainian archbishop. Um, so could somebody speak to the role um, that religion is playing in this? Well, I uh, can share the things that I learned from a webinar this morning that was arranged by the Association uh, for a Study of Nationalities, which featured panelists webbing, uh, zooming in from within Ukraine, including one from within the besieged city of Kherson and people from Kiev who were, you know, in, in, in their bathrooms, which is the safest place. Anyway, so this question also came up. And, um, and I've also seen uh, in, in the news that the top guy of the Russian Orthodox Church does not condemn this war. But uh, apparently, I've also heard news that many local leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate want to break with that leadership because they oppose this war. Uh, the other uh, dimension in which the church came up is that uh, some that, that it's been documented that some of the members of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate were in fact acted as operatives. Uh, one of the things that was documented early on is spray painted and um, sort of geolocator little tags put on uh, signs to guide the Russian invaders uh, on roads, on rooftops, things like that. And that there were some um, religious personnel that were also involved with that aside from operatives that had been uh, kind of moved into Ukraine and embedded uh, in the preceding few months. Um, so, um, so, so that is the demand. The most interesting thing is, and Sophia, you were shaking your head yes, so maybe you know more about the uh, Moscow Patriarchate uh, branches of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine that are wanting to break with that leadership that does not condemn the war. Sophia, would you, would you like to? Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for this question. I have heard that um, Lada, as you told, is it's true, local uh, Ukrainian uh, priests, they um, like recorded a video with a request to um, like to condemn this war, uh, or at least to explain what is the official uh, position of the church. And uh, as you, uh, as it, as it is known, uh, Patriarch Kirill he didn't condemn it, so he originally uh, supports uh, Putin in his. Um, ambition so uh, there so uh, he told like um everyone wants peace but originally peace doesn't mean capitulation yeah uh, peace in russia's propaganda it means like stop fighting just uh, take all our rules and every uh, like there will be a peace but it's not a peace it's a capitulation and as for religion actually it's one of the uh, most powerful uh, instrument uh, in uniting um, Actually, I have lots of people uh, who support like um, Russia, yeah, and they told like, uh, why should we uh, be together with Russia? One of the strongest argument is that's because we have the common religion, and this religion is Orthodox. Um, and that's why it's very important like to be all these Slavic languages, all these Slavic uh, nations together, um, together in language, together in religion, together in territory. So it's three biggest myths created a um, long time ago. And it's important to uh, cut this narrative uh, because uh, 
until it exists, there is a hazard that Ukraine just uh, can't be independent anymore. Uh, so yeah, I have heard like um, many local uh, priests uh, against this war. So it seems like two days, probably two, three days, uh, it, uh, it, it has to be a time in order to clarify, uh, clarify who is against and who is for this war. Thank you. Uh, Chris. And I just wanted to note on the question of uh, religion's role in this conflict um, that Ukraine has one of the largest populations of Jews in Europe. And the Jewish community has, of course, been heavily affected by this war. And it's been interesting to see Jewish leaders in Ukraine come out very strongly um, calling out Russia's aggression. The chief rabbi of Kyiv's synagogue, uh, main synagogue uh, last week released a video where he was calling on Russian Jews to rise up and to, to call out the war in Russia. And there's been a huge amount of solidarity among the Jewish community for um, people fighting in the, in the war on, in Ukraine. And I think that it's, it's important to note that they are also um, part of the conversation and that they're trying to rally support among Jews uh, in Israel and other parts of the world to um, come to Ukraine's support. Uh, I'm going to move on to the uh, next set of questions because there's still a lot, a lot to get to. Uh, this one is about energy, and I think this uh, would be probably best addressed by John. Um, doesn't this war further highlight the critical need to transition the global economy dependent on fossil fuels to sustainable clean energy? I assume the answer to that would be yes. But maybe to elaborate, um, what are the implications of the dependence of many European countries on Russian gas, and what will be the breaking point at which these states decide that uh, that should also be sanctioned? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, of course, I also agree that this is another indicator that we need to make a rapid transition to green technology. Um, but uh, I think the question of the tolerance of, uh, of Europeans uh, to further sanctions in the energy area is pretty serious one. I just saw today that Olaf Scholz, the uh, German chancellor who surprised everyone by promising to raise over a number of years German defense spending to 2% of GDP and to send uh, lethal assistance to the Ukrainian armed forces said that uh, you, uh, Germany was not in a position to support uh, sanctions on gas and oil at this time. Um, I, I think this winter will be, uh, you know, that is perhaps one reason why Putin chose to uh, conduct this operation in the winter, especially this winter when stockpiles of gas in Europe were low. Um, that uh, is something that he and, um, and Gazprom, of course, helped to create. Um, I think that uh, in this winter, it'll be difficult to expand um, sanctions to uh, gas and oil. I know that the uh, discussion is going on. I don't think it's terribly helpful, to be honest, for the United States Congress to be uh, sort of grandstanding on this issue since it'll have relatively little, little impact in, in uh, North America. Uh, we do need to be sensitive to the uh, allies because uh, sanctions are always under pressure for disintegrating over time. And uh, we need to calibrate this in a way that we sustain pressure um, in order to achieve our policy objectives. So I think that's a big, big challenge, how to exactly frame uh, the expansion of sanctions going forward and also to consider uh, under what circumstances we might actually uh, ease sanctions. We haven't even 
we've gotten into that discussion yet. Uh, so we're, we're nearing the end of the hour. So I'm going to ask the question that's really on everybody's mind, and that has to do with the end game. Um, many people ask variations of this, so I'm just going to uh, pick two representative questions. Realistically, what would it take for this conflict to end without Ukraine submitting to Russia's unrealistic demands and for Ukraine to regain its pre-2014 borders, including Crimea and Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts? Or do we accept the inevitable that Ukraine will never regain its sovereignty with Russia occupying Ukrainian territory similar to Georgia and a Ukrainian insurgency develops? Another question related, can you imagine a scenario or circumstances in which this war could come to an end? What would such a scenario involve? And uh, a final uh, tangent to this question, what are possible off ramps that Ukraine and the West can offer Putin that will not provoke him to escalate? Certainly the question of the day. Where to begin? I'll give a shot at that. It's widely discussed among policy wonks all over the place. Um, maybe some of us are not as well informed about the specifics as others. Um, my personal view, um, I guess the most basic thing to say about this is this uh, war will probably end at the negotiating table. And that's why I'm actually encouraged every time I see talks arranged that involve the two sides. That, that could be uh, some kind of mission such as that, which was undertaken by Naftali Bennett two days ago, the Israeli prime minister to talk to uh, Putin and also stay in touch with President Zelensky and coordinate with the United States, Germany and others. That, that I think is a hopeful sign. He reportedly met for three hours with, uh, with Putin and we know very little about what came out of that. I also look at the talks that are being arranged by the Turkish foreign minister Çavuşoğlu uh, in Antalya that will involve the uh, Russian and Ukrainian foreign ministers as opportunities. Uh, this will need to be sorted at the uh, negotiating table. I don't think it's realistic actually to expect uh, Ukraine to uh, emerge from this without making concessions, but nor is it realistic for Russia to insist upon all its demands or for Russia to make no concessions. But um, it's early days, sadly, despite all the suffering, in my view, one of the critical uh, in, um, in, ingredients in a successful uh, negotiation of this kind is probably going to be a, a feeling of pain on both sides. And um, the pain is there, but how, what does the magnitude need to be? What do the issues on the table need to be? How do the uh, uh, negotiators need to negotiate? I don't know. We have an interest in a negotiated outcome. Uh, we do not want to see this taken to its bitter end, my view. Does anybody want to comment on, on the view within Ukraine or views? I could just say a little bit in, um, re, you know, following up on what the ambassador said. Uh, I don't have an, an answer on to what it would take for, you know, the conflict to be settled so that uh, Ukraine would go back to pre-2014 uh, boundaries. Uh, in terms of off-ramps, though, I agree that every time I see uh, that there's a, you know, a mediator talking to Putin, be it Bennett or Macron or Schultz or someone else who yet has yet to come forward, um, you know, I'm, that's, that's one of the most encouraging moments for me because I really think that it's incredibly important to keep channels of communications open. Um, I, you know, I keep cheering for some form of back channel diplomacy uh, to occur that, you know, helps guide both parties into uh, 
what from their perspective are reasonable, tolerable um, compromises and if you want concessions. Um, I also think it's really important to follow up on something the ambassador said to maintain Western unity in terms of sanctions. What Putin is really trying to do, I think, is to hope that there's so much disagreement that, that to fracture the coalition and the unity that's, um, and to, to create you know, catalysts for that fracturing to occur. I think the best chance, likely the best chance for some kind of uh, end game that is not, put it this way, not as catastrophic as we all fear would be for back channel diplomacy, continued negotiations, unity on the West, uh, and pressure that um, that uh, Russians put, you know, the kind of cracks in the edifice of, of Putin's regime. And as I mentioned, someone emphasizing some um, so, some figures within his inner circle beginning to hopefully persuade him in some way that there needs to be negotiation and an end game. Does anyone else want to respond? Yeah, I, I'd like to say, I think it's in the nature of my, my profession as an anthropologist that I tend to see things not from above, but from below. And so um, I've seen so many people um, who have, you know, just regular civilians who have taken up arms and, 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 and mayors and stuff saying that we will stand to the death. Um, I fear a massacre, but in terms of negotiating with Putin, as Glennis, as you pointed out, he, he doesn't want Ukraine to exist. He doesn't think it's legitimate. Ukraine is a thorn in his side. So um, he is essentially committing a genocide. Anybody who doesn't agree with his view is being massacred. So I, I am inspired by the people who came out into the squares of Kherson to protest. And I think the only thing preventing them from being massively gunned down is media, right? Live streaming and videos. Um, although who knows whether the people in Russia would believe what they see, but I'm still holding out hope that as more and more of the uh, Russians who are captured or the young people in Russia who are managing to access media, I, I know that it's such a, the, the anti-war movement in public is still so tiny, but, um, I feel like given Ukrainians' determination not to give up their freedom because they do not want to live under Putin's authoritarian regime, they're willing to lay their lives down for this. Um, are the Russian soldiers willing to lay their lives down for Putin's greatness and, and, and mothers to sacrifice their sons for this? So. I don't know how it will end, but my hope is that there will be more of a grassroots movement of people who have relatives in Russia to try to reach out, to try to convince them of what's going on. And also the fact is that the everyday sanctions will make people more annoyed with the regime, that the complacent people will have to, you know, there'll be more dissatisfaction. But uh, another thing that that... Uh, a survey that I mentioned that was done on March 1st uh, in terms of uh, 1,200 Ukrainians that were polled from all around the country of all ages and genders, 90% um, on average said that they have hope for their country. So, you know, and, and that has increased greatly from three months ago. So maybe it's a naive hope, but I think people really are feeling this idealism and this willingness to fight. And so I don't think Zelensky's going to 
give up land. And, and so, yes, it, it may be more of a massacre. And if Russia takes over places, we can expect that there would be a strong underground resistance from the people that whose country is occupied. Uh, yes, Sophia. And you know, one of the awful, uh, the most uh, awful thing is just the sanctions provoke Russian to hate not the regime, like Putin's regime, but Ukrainians. So it's because of us they have the sanctions. And it's just incredibly weird. And as for your question, uh, you know, um, all we know, like uh, fairy tales, and in every culture around the world, there is a tale about a monster which regularly comes to people demanding the sacrifice of a beauty for him to uh, devour. And terrified people try to uh, beg him, yeah, or seek how to pay uh, what the price he wants. But uh, the key reason is uh, the more you give, the more he desires. And that's why um, opening fire on, uh, on an Erhodar a couple of days ago is essential Putin's nuclear war because Ukraine has no nu nuclear power. And all that is uh, required, like, uh, it's, uh, there is no need to press the button um, in order to make a disaster. It just, um, it just, he can turn on this nuclear power plant and the genocide project like Ukraine without Ukrainians is loading because we have uh, lived, uh, uh, it was actually the previous century, the, in the beginning of 12, uh, 20th century, in 1930s, uh, a great terror, right terror, where, where uh, lots of in, uh, Ukrainian elite, hey, they just had had been killed uh, in, in different camps. And I really don't want it to be re uh, repeated one more time. And we see that, is the same. The regime is the same. And if we don't stop it now, it's made be very, very, very dangerous in a couple of years. So we really need the world support um, because Ukrainians, they don't give up. I am sure because I'm Ukrainian, but he just can kill all of us. And that's all. And it will be like Holodomor territory, Ukraine without Ukrainians. So a lot of people have asked how they can help. Um, how can they help people in Ukraine? How can they help uh, refugees or provide humanitarian assistance? Um, would somebody like to speak to that? Um, so where, where would you start? Um, where, where should they go? Well, the, the Ellison Center has a really uh, good uh, list um, of different ways to help Ukraine. Uh, so I would suggest that you go there as a first way to start. Um, I would also mention that uh, there are some other uh, ideas. If you want to funnel money to Ukraine, you can book Airbnbs that you don't in intend to check into in the near future. Uh, and there, you can read about how to do that in the most um, effective way possible. You can support uh, the Medusa State radio station broadcasting from Latvia, uh, which can transmit some information, uh, objective information into, into Russia. And I'm sure that our other panelists, especially Sophia, you know, have, have ideas about, other ideas about how to help. Sophia or, or Lida? Uh, yeah, uh, the first, uh, the first and the most important uh, thing is just a complete isolation of Russia in all existing senses, academic, uh, 
sport, like whatever. Uh, and at the same time, supporting Ukrainian studies, supporting Ukrainian languages, uh, Ukrainian culture, dances, uh, culture, history, historical projects. Uh, so just to to support Ukraine, not just with wars, yeah, and humanitarian aid. It's very also important, uh, but also to uh, to share the uh, to share the true information among other people because we know how powerful Russian propaganda is. And my close friend, uh, she just uh, told me yesterday that uh, if I uh, listened to this Russian propaganda two or three days, I would barely believe in all they're talking about. Just believe how strong this is. And that's why it's really important to share the information with others and not to give up, um, to share, to, uh, to tell about all these uh, awful things because uh, I really afraid that uh, some people, they just started to think, oh, probably really Ukrainians uh, just have to stop fighting and there will be peace. No, it will be the stop of our existence at all. So uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest um, support that you can uh, that you can have right now it's to uh, share the information truthful information with all your friends uh, families relatives and also to send if you can donate ukrainian humanitarian aid uh, financial aid there are plenty of different uh, sources i also can share um, like ukrainian associations uh, association of ukrainians in, uh, of washington state we have uh, an association of ukrainian and we are gathering money for a helmet and for medic medicine uh, so if you need i have uh, i can leave my contacts and if you have some question just just don't don't keep silent and don't uh think that it just go going on no and uh Lara, do you want i also put a, a link in the chat to yourmaidanpress.com which is a, a journalist outlet that started in the revolution of dignity and i shared a page that they have where they have links to various various uh places um the National Bank of Ukraine, you, you go to their site, you can use a credit card to donate directly to the needs of the army. Uh, Erasm for Ukraine, Together for Ukraine, uh, is a very well-established um, uh, activist volunteer organization. Uh, news outlets, the Kiev Independent, Your Maidan Press. Um, I mean, uh, that page has many, many uh, places that you can contribute to more specific things, psych psychological support for children, uh, medical support for war veterans. I mean, the, as Chris mentioned, uh, civil society in Ukraine has boomed. There's so many volunteer organizations since 2014. So there is more of this infrastructure developed to actually help people in various ways. So um, with that, I wanna thank the panelists. Um, it's been a very intense 12 days. It's been, it's been exhausting. Thank you for um, helping to share uh, your knowledge and your wisdom. Thanks everybody. <laughs>